Good morning, church. You can have a seat. If you'd like, you can go ahead and open in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We'll be in chapter 12 as we celebrate Palm Sunday this morning. And we will momentarily read our primary text for this morning. Um, I want to start by reading Psalm chapter 77 and just listen to the psalmist, likely King David, as he pins down his prayers and meditations to the Lord. Psalm chapter 77, let this kind of echo in your heart. Verses 11 through 12 read, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Let's pray. God, thank you so very much for your grace, your mercy, your compassion. Lord, thank you for your presence in our lives. God, as we prepare to study your triumphal entry, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, Lord, the final week of your earthly life. May your scripture penetrate our hearts. May it convict us of our sin. May it encourage us in our holy deeds. May it compel us to love one another. Lord, may it motivate us to be the people you have called us to be. Thank you for the cross of Christ, the blood he shed that covers our sins, I pray for faith in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. I'd like to start off this morning with a little bit of good news. As I'm sure we're all aware at this point, the week has come with its fair share of bad news. But as we meditate and remember the mighty works and the miraculous deeds of our great God, I think it's fitting that we acknowledge some things that have happened that are glorious this week. Earlier this week, the International Justice Mission, that is the IJM, uh, conducted a rescue mission in Ghana, wherein 10 young boys, as young as five, year, five years old, were rescued from fishing vessels as they were enslaved and working for tyrants. Ten young boys were set free from brutal work slavery. Um, Our own team of missionaries just returned back from Guatemala, got in late last night. Let's give them a hand. They spent a week in Guatemala sharing the good news, leading vacation Bible schools, playing lots of soccer, I'm sure, um, singing lots of songs, no karaoke, I hope, Um, But they proclaim God's grace to the people of Guatemala, and great work is continuing to be done there. Uh, We just witnessed the baptism of the Stamshers. Um, So great and glorious to see that symbol of new life in Christ. Um, Thursday, I know personally of 20 teenage students in our community that prayed to receive Christ as their Savior, and that really gets me excited. Even in the bad news of uh, Colton Shaw's passing away. We can still celebrate the good news 
the triumph that comes through that. As he passed from this life, he was a believer. Due to his expressed faith in Christ, he is now in glory with the Father. Y'all, God is good. In light of all the sorrow and the grief and the mourning that we experience in this life, may we ever remember that God is good. He is 100% completely worthy of our adoration and our worship. He is good in that he allows us to experience his mercy, his grace, and his love on a daily basis. Would we open our eyes and see it before us? We need to constantly remind ourselves of God's goodness. What a great God he is to offer true life in the midst of true death. God is good. Life does not always seem so good. This week our community has been reminded of how finite our lives truly are. Colton Shaw, a 14-year-old boy in our community, uh, player for the Valdosta High School Wildcats, was struck as an errant throw, sailed over the first baseman's head and into his dugout and struck him in the temple, and they rushed him to Tallahassee, and uh, Colton passed away. And that's tragic. It's hard to find any beauty, any life in that event. But let me remind you, once again, that God is good. And now as Colton sits in heaven, he is crying out, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, O Lord, you are good. You are Messiah. Hosanna, come save us. God is good. Let's stand and read. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, we'll read eight verses. This is referred to as the triumphal entry. God's word says, The next day the large crowd that had come to feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Thank you. You can be seated again. The triumphal entry as this event is known is powerfully moving account of Jesus Christ's claim to the throne in heaven. Not just the throne in heaven and not just the throne in Jerusalem, but it's vital that we understand this is Christ making his rightful claim to the throne in our lives, the throne in our hearts. And I believe the people, the, the crowds that exalted him and the crowds that cried out, Hosanna, I think, Hosanna, I think they had a glimpse. I think they had a, a, a hint or a taste of what Christ came to do. But unfortunately, as we know from looking at our lens, 
their claims were nothing more than exuberant cheering. It was hollow at best, kind of like the Easter bunnies that we might put in an Easter basket. It looks great on the outside, but there's no substance in the middle. It's, it's hollow. Um, it's kind of the same as when uh, you're a Georgia Bulldog fan and you cheer, we're number one, we're number one. You know there's no substance to that. And I can say that as a fan. We haven't been number one since before I was born. So I don't know why we say that. I'll uh, hold back on my Florida Gator and Alabama and Auburn Tiger jokes. But the crowds did not really understand what they were shouting. As they cried out, Hosanna, Lord, come save us. You are the king. You are Messiah. There was a glimpse of reality in the words they were saying, but in their hearts there was no substance behind it. Did you notice at the very end of the text we read in verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that they are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees were a little bit more sober. You see, this was uh, Palm Sunday. This was a festival that happened in Jerusalem every year. They were celebrating Passover. And now we know that Jesus had come to be the Passover lamb. He was riding in on a donkey, the, the steed of a servant. And uh, the Jews, however, did not view him as the Passover lamb. They didn't view him as the Passover lion. They didn't view him as any more than a religious radical, someone that they needed to put down. As a matter of fact, we look in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we hear the Pharisees say, don't cry out to him. You need to hush those, those people up. And Jesus says, if these people don't cheer, the very stones will cry out and exalt me. The Pharisees understood the significance of the language. They understood the significance of the vernacular that was being used here because it was very prophetic. We look in Psalm chapter 118. Psalm chapter 118 is is mostly understood as the root of this Hosanna language. It is where we derive that Greek word, Hosanna, and it becomes English, Hosanna. And this is where it comes from. Psalm 118, verse 7, The Lord is on my side as helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And so the people of uh, Hebrew background would read this verse and they would see that the Lord is a mighty champion. He has come to rescue us. Psalm 118, 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The Lord will come to save us. We are Jews. We are his people. We are of his lineage. The Lord is on our side. He will rescue us. And finally, Psalm 118, verse 25 says, save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. And I think that that final word, success, there's so many things that that can represent, so many things that that could translate into. What does it mean for you to have success in your life, in your job, in your family, in your hobbies? What does a successful life appear to you to be like? What is success if you were to define it? I believe if we were to tap into the heartbeat of the Hebrew people, that their cry for salvation was largely linked to their desire for worldly success. Yes, the Pharisees were all too aware of what was happening 
And the Pharisees didn't like it one bit. They did not care for this man. They did not care for the Christ. They did not care for Jesus of Nazareth. They did whatever they could in their power. They schemed and they plotted to try to uh, see his downfall, if you will. They wanted someone who wasn't a religious revolutionary. They wanted someone who would fit their religious mold. They wanted someone who would bring the type of kingdom that they dreamed about, someone that would make them proper prosperous, someone that would put them uh, in the positions of power. So as the crowds cheered for the Christ, the Pharisees were already plotting and scheming to take Jesus down. Trying to understand the culture of the day, John Piper says this, this day of salvation is the long anticipated deliverance that Israel thought might never come, but it will it does. And Psalm 118.25 captures the hope. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So I think in order for us to dig just a little bit deeper, let's look at that word, Hosanna. O Lord, O Lord, give us success. The word Hosanna, the Greek expression, Uh, literally in Hebrew means, O Lord, save. So as the, the wine is being poured generously on the Palm Sunday and the people are dancing in the street and the party is taking place, we're just a couple of levels away from Mardi Gras that might happen in New Orleans. The people are cheering, they're excited. The, the work has ceased and the celebration is in full form Jesus comes in, and they are chanting, Save us, O Lord! Save us, O Lord! Save us, O Lord! Hell to the King! You are the man. You are our champion. Rescue us. It is clear from the words of the psalm shouted by the crowd that Jesus is being proclaimed as the Messianic King. A little bit more understanding comes from the passage that just took place in the book of John, chapter 11. Jesus had just proved his power supremely. Sure, he had fed 5,000. He had fed the multitudes. He had broken bread and multiplied the fish. He had healed the blind. He caused the lame to walk. But if you really want to perform a miracle that counts, you raise someone from the dead. So in John, chapter 11... Jesus is in Bethany, and his dear friend Lazarus has fallen ill and has passed away. And Mary and Martha, they're distraught. They're completely brokenhearted over the loss of their loved one. And so we pick up in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Are you picking up on the details yet? The foreshadowing? Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they would believe that you sent me. You see, his claim that he is the one sent by God. Don't miss that. He's saying this aloud. They had to hear it in order to write it down. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Don't miss the miracle. Jesus raised Lazarus, who had been dead four days, who the people expected to uh, fill their nostrils with a stench of dead man's bones, of flesh rotting, a carcass that is stuck away in a tomb. Jesus brought him back to life just days before he would enter Jerusalem. And he did this purposely in front of the eyes of the onlookers, both believers and both doubters. People who wanted to uh, pull him down and rob him of his majesty and rob him of his uh, claim to the throne and also his followers who were trying to push him to the throne. And he performed this miracle before their very eyes so that they would finally grasp that he has the power over life and death. But Jesus still had one card up his sleeve. He still had one more final exploit. And this was merely a foreshadowing. This was merely a taste of what was to come. Many watched in amazement as the corpse was resurrected. And as they watched, their minds were spinning. Here is a homeless man. Here is an outcast man. Here is a man who has been hungry. Here is a man who has walked the, the, the trails from Jerusalem and Nazareth and Bethany and all over the place. He's done all these great things and he hasn't exploited us at all. He hasn't tried to uh, rule over us, but he's ruled with us. And so the followers are gaining. He is growing in popularity and he is moving to Jerusalem. And as the crowds follow They are just falling in love with Jesus because they see his power and they want what he offers. At the announcement of Jesus soon to be entering the city, the people who witnessed Lazarus return from the grave are spreading the word. And I want to read this verbatim so I don't mess it up. The people were saying, Jesus is coming. He has saved Lazarus from the dead. So we know that he can save us from the Roman oppressors. He is coming to be the king of Jerusalem. He will put an end to our persecution, put an end to our tyrant, put an end to the economic plight, put an end to our struggles, put an end to our suffering. We will be exalted. We will have more. Our barrels of wine will overflow. Our crops will be multiplied. Our children will grow and become strong. We will have many sons. We will live long lives. We will prosper. Hail to the king. These folks wanted to see Jesus go Old Testament. They wanted to see bloodshed. They wanted to see wrath and plagues. They wanted to see the Roman rulers kicked out of their city. They wanted to regain their promised land. Out with the Romans, out with the Gentiles and in with Jesus. Yes, they welcomed Jesus into their city. But the question we all must ask is this, did they welcome Jesus in their lives? They gave him the worship of their words, but what about the worship of their hearts? So here's the big idea. I want to make sure that you guys get this. The people were absolutely 100% right to worship Jesus and to count on him for salvation. 
Their major error, however, was that they considered to be salvation. What was success? I'll ask that question again. What is success for you? If something was taken away from your life, if you lost your job, if you lost your bank account, if you lost your health, if you lost your car, if you lost your dream home, if you lost your vacation house, if you lost your dog, if you lost your ACL, if these things were taken away from you, do you curse God? Do you develop bitterness in your hearts? Do you develop an attitude of remorse or uh, maybe a better word would be angst against the Lord? What is success to you? For the crowds, success was political rule. Does that sound familiar? Not much has changed. I think if we're not careful as people in Valdosta, Georgia, as people in the Bible Belt, so-called, we will be in danger of wrongly interpreting what Christ considers salvation. We will have a misguided understanding of success. It is in response to the popular miracles that the crowds lift the name of Jesus. In response to the thought of better lives, the people cry out, Hosanna, but behind the call of the king is a motive of selfishness. What the crowds really want is political salvation. What the crowds really want is health, wealth, and prosperity. Does this attitude sound familiar to you? We don't preach the prosperity gospel, do we? But if you come to Jesus, he'll make your life better. If you come to Jesus, you'll learn how to budget your finances better and you'll see your bank account grow. If you come to Jesus, you can have a nicer car. If you come to Jesus, you'll learn how to teach your kids and they'll obey you more. If you come to Jesus, dot, 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 does this attitude sound familiar? If so, it's probably because we have wrestled with these thoughts in our hearts. Listen, guys, when Jesus enters the picture, when Jesus, quote, knocks on the door of your heart, when Jesus starts ringing the bell on your soul, you basically have one of two options. There is no middle ground. And what the people did was they wanted to worship him by giving lip service, but not give him their lives. And Jesus says, there is no middle ground. I get it all or you get nothing, period. So we can worship him or we can whip him. We can lift him or we can lash him. We can exalt him or we can execute him. We can bow to him or we can banish him. We can love him or we can loathe him. Tim Keller says it this way, we can either crown him or we can kill him, but there is no middle ground. Where does Christ stand in your life? Does he get more than your lip service? Does he get more than your uh, words of praise? Does he get more than your Sunday morning church attendance? Sometimes the absolute best way to get a point across is to be direct. So I want to ask a direct question right now that I believe is very pertinent. Based on the way you're living your life, not on how you act at church or on what you say about Jesus in the company of others, but based on the way you're living your life, have you crowned Christ or have you crucified Christ? We have a video clip that will help clear the muddy waters that I've created. Let's watch. The next day, the great crowd that had gathered heard 
We know that by reading ahead in the scriptures and, and, and looking forward in the verses to come, that the welcoming parade, the triumphal entry, the palm leaves, the cheering and the overflowing wine and the exuberant dancing, joining Jesus in the streets, that these things would, would slow down, that they would come to a halt, that the Pharisees and other religious leaders would convince the people that Jesus didn't have their best interest at heart. They would spread their message and infiltrate the hearts of the crowds to the extent that they would truly shout, crucify him. It was the voice of culture that persuaded the crowds to change their position from praising, crown him to the curse of crucify him. But guys, make sure you don't miss it. This was truly the work of God all along. As demonstrated in the gentleness and the meekness and the humility of Christ coming in on a donkey, we can recognize that Christ didn't come for political reign. He didn't come in as a warrior, as a general, ready to shed blood. That's what people who are on the campaign of war do. They find a big, powerful steed, and they put an amazing saddle on this huge horse, and they charge forward and wave their sword around, and they lead their troops to bloodshed. That wasn't the way Jesus entered the scene. He came on a donkey as a humble servant. Remember, the people wanted a lion. They wanted a victor. Christ came as a lamb to be slain, to satisfy the wrath of God once for all. He would endure excruciating torture, excruciating death, the cross he would embrace and his life he would give. He spilled his blood at Calvary on Good Friday, and this was necessary, completely necessary to make atonement for our sins against God. So yes, the people originally, they shouted, they cheered, Hosanna, Jesus the Messiah, he has come to save us. They fully believed that Jesus was the one to worship, and right they were. What we must realize is their motivation for worship was grossly misguided. Hear me when I say, Jesus will never rule on our terms. He always rules and reigns completely. Not with the limited uh, ability that we want to give him. Not with the short rope that we want to give him. We want to give Jesus just enough rope so that we can have a, a taste of religion, a taste of spirituality in our lives. We want to come to church just enough to satisfy that, that little uh, craving we have to feel made right with God. We want to go to Bible studies just enough so that we can satisfy our conscience. We want to talk about Jesus with our friends just enough so that they know that we're believers. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. I come fully or I don't come at all. I reign completely or I don't reign at all. You can crown me or you can crucify me, but there is no middle ground. This plain biblical truth cuts to our core and forces us to wrestle with whether or not we have exalted God in our lives for the right reasons. And remember, 
the right action with the wrong motivation is still the wrong action. The two must go hand in hand. Guys, why do you worship Christ? Why? Why do I worship Christ? Why do we worship Christ? Why do we lift his name? Why do we cry out Hosanna? Why do we call upon him for salvation? What's driving that in our spirits? As the people wanted prosperity and cried out for kind of a salvation in the here and now rather than a salvation in the there and then. They weren't focused on their sins. They weren't focused on spiritual uh, resurrection. They were more focused on, again, health, wealth, and prosperity. We must identify with those folks and we must ask ourselves the difficult questions. Do we have similar motives in our heart? We might be tempted to look at Jesus through a similar selfish lens because we are humans. From the fall of man when Adam and Eve were tempted and looked away from God, we were all born separated, all born apart from God. Romans chapter 5 makes that abundantly clear. God, guys, we have a disease called sin, and there's only one cure for that disease. And often in our lives, we fight against it. We fight it. We, we might recognize that we have a sickness. We might recognize that our hearts are broken. We might recognize that our souls are split apart, and we need something to put us back together. Yet we still fight against the cure, which is Christ. I debated on whether or not to share this illustration, but here goes. In November, uh, my daughter Layla developed pneumonia in her lungs, and she had all kinds of respiratory issues, and she was just a sick little girl. So we did what the doctors told us. Uh, we gave her the medicine, and it seemed to clear up some. And then a few weeks or a month later, she would develop another respiratory. You know, she would get RSV or she would get croup or something. She was just had this nagging cough and this congestion that just would not go away. So finally, this kept taking place. The cycle continued to repeat itself, and poor little Layla just stayed sick. So finally, 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 we got the attention of her pediatrician, and the pediatrician said, look, we've got to nip this in the bud. And the best way to do that is to put her on a daily inhaler. We're going to give her this medicine and this medicine, and you're going to do it so many times a day, and just make sure that for the next six weeks, we pump this medicine into her. Well, it has a, a breathing mask that fits over her nose and her mouth, and it has an inhaler on the other end, and you press that inhaler twice, and you fit that, that mask over her nose and her mouth, and, and it's not fun as a dad holding this thing, trying to hold down your, your daughter's arms and trying to prevent her from kicking. She feels like she's being suffocated. She feels like I'm torturing her. This is not what she naturally is inclined to go for, but I know in my heart of hearts that this is the medicine that's going to make her better. Guys, as people, we fight against Christ because we don't understand that his ways are meant to truly save us. That he is the one who provides true life. Would we let go and trust in him so that we would not carry around this disease of sin in our hearts, but we would let him continue to work that that out of our souls? Are we tempted to look at Jesus through a similar 
selfish lens as the crowds. Jesus will pad your pockets. He will lengthen your life. He will give you uh, a better family. He will make your wife love you and make your husband love you. And so what if this, what if we said, take away the cute little Jesus fish from your business card if you attend church to earn more money? What if we said, remove the cross from your rearview mirror if you attend church to give you physical protection while you travel? Do you serve Jesus because he adds to your finances, because he provides better health, because he gives you better grades in school, or because he makes your kids obey? This is idolatry. This is placing the gifts above the giver. God did not save us so that we could enjoy his gifts. He saved us so that we could enjoy him. Would you grab onto that? The other type of worship that God abhors, that God hates, is nothing more than an old-fashioned, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. God, I'll go to church. God, I'll talk about you to my friends. God, I'll, I'll keep a Bible in my car. God, I'll put a, a cross sticker on my cell phone. God, I'll read a devotion every day. I'll say a prayer before I eat my food. And you're going to look out for me, right? You're going to make everything better, right? God, I'll scratch your back. Will you scratch mine? That type of worship, if it can even be called worship, sets us up for disaster. Complete and utter disaster. What happens when those gifts are no longer there? What happens when your kids are rebelling and they become teenagers and they get a little bit of freedom and they start carrying on and carousing like the culture and they go off and drink and party and cut loose and they begin sleeping around? Do you blame God? I mean, after all, you said, God, I'll serve you if you'll help my kids. What happens when the marital strife in your family continues and you can't get along with your husband, you can't get along with your wife, and you've been praying, God, I'll be a Christian, I'll go to church if you'll just save my husband, if you'll just save my wife. Do you give up on God when that doesn't happen? I submit no. True worship endures when the gifts stop. Because you're focused on the giver. You're focused on God. You're focused on Jesus Christ. You're focused on the right success. You're focused on the right salvation. Don't be misguided in your understanding of what Jesus came to do. Yes, he came to save. Yes, true worship is when at the very loss of your firstborn son, whom you've nurtured and spent the last 14 years of your life with as one of your best friends, when this boy is in the hospital room, unable to breathe on his own, and finally transferred from this life to the next, you as a dad know in your heart of hearts that God is in control. Y'all in the hospital in Tallahassee on Thursday, I'm visiting with coaches, I'm visiting with family members, and the doctors pronounce Colton as dead. The first words out of the father's mouth, this is God's plan. Tears streaming down his face, uh, barely unable to get the words out, but his heart was fully devoted to the Lord. True worship 
is when you say God is in control, you cling tighter to him as your savior than you ever have before. Confused, mourning, broken, and utterly distraught, yet looking to Christ. This is worship. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is worship. Not picking and choosing what we accept from God like the Jews did, but truly in all the areas of our life, the joyful and the painful, acknowledging that he is Lord and lifting our praise to him. We have a savior who went to the cross so that we do not have to fear death. And more than that, he has purchased eternal citizenship with him in heaven. He is worthy of our worship. Is life better with Jesus? Yes and amen a million times over. Yes and amen. Don't mishear me. Turning to Jesus does not automatically curse your life. I believe the exact opposite. I believe it gives you a peace and a hope and a joy that surpasses all types of worldly understanding. The culture around us merely cannot understand what pushes us to continue in our steadfast faithfulness to the Lord. But hear me loud and clear when I tell you that Jesus Christ did not die on the cross so that you could have a luxury sedan, so that you could retire early, so that you could find the spouse of your dreams, so that your kids went to the elite college, or so that you could afford your dream home at the beach. That was not why Christ went to the cross. Jesus endured the suffering and shame of the, uh, of the cross. He endured the bloody torture at the hand of the Romans. He endured the spear in his side and the thorns on his head and the nails in his limbs so that your sins, my sins could be forgiven. Are you trusting in Christ for the salvation of your soul? Don't miss this, guys. Here it is. We worship not because he makes our lives better, but because without him, there is no life at all. We worship not because he makes our lives better, but because apart from him is no life at all. Where's your heart? The evidence of your life clearly portrays your relationship with God. You don't get your life right and come to God. You come to God, and he straightens things out. He teaches you what it's like to live in a holy, sanctified, righteous manner. He gives you the good works. James uh, explicitly talks about this. He says, you've got faith, that's great. Now you get the works. I don't want you guys to hear me say, you must do X, Y, and Z if you're going to be saved. No, we are saved by faith in Christ, the blood he shed that covers our sins makes us right with God the Father. And you believe that. You call him Lord of your life. You shout, Hosanna in the highest. You are my king. You are my savior. Oh, Lord, come save me. And by the faith that God gives you upon his grace, you pursue him one step at a time, one foot in front of the other. You call him savior because you're blessed to call him savior. Because he is life. Today is Palm Sunday. As we look ahead to Easter, to the day we celebrate our king defeating death, how can you begin to prepare the way for him in your heart? The crowds laid palm branches before him, which was symbolic 
It was on their currency. They printed palm branches on their coins. It was representative of political reign. It was representative of prosperity. Will you only give him reign over the areas in your life that you see fit? Or will you welcome him with praise and worship in all things? As we're drawing to a close, I'd love for all of us to do business with the Lord. To ask yourself the tough question, number one, do I call him Hosanna? And is that reflective of my heart? If not, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? I believe that God's word is absolutely accurate and authoritative. And what it says is that apart from Christ, there is no hope. I was very grateful this week that in the grief counseling and in the mentoring and in the visiting and in the preaching and in the praying, yes, I'm exhausted. No, I would never, ever want to experience that again. But y'all, listen, life is not good. God is good, and he makes our lives better. And apart from him, there is no life at all. But y'all hear me. I was happy that Colton Shaw had a testimony of hope in confessing Christ as Savior. What about you? Life is finite. It is here today and gone tomorrow. Where do you stand with God Almighty? Have you lifted him and crowned him in your heart? Is it more than just a verbal proclamation? Perhaps at this moment you've been struck with the reality that you are misguided in your worship. Or maybe you've never worshipped Christ at all never called him Messiah or never worshipped him as Hosanna in the highest, would you muster all the courage you can and with the help of God's Holy Spirit, find a pastor, find a counselor. As we close out this sermon and as we get ready to respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives, would you find someone that can help lead you to the cross, help explain salvation, help tell you what takes place in a person's life upon expressing faith in Christ. Y'all, this is of profound significance. Would you get right with God? Would you answer his call? Would you worship him and him alone? As Clint comes to close this in song, there will be pastors and counselors all throughout this room. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to counsel you. I love you guys. But more than that, Christ loves you. And his love is demonstrated in the cross. The cross that he endured for your sins and my sins. What are you going to do with that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for taking the throne. The throne at the right hand of God the Father. Where you reign eternally, God. But more than that, Father, I pray and I plead that you would reign in the hearts of all of us. God, that we would give you complete control in our lives, that we would worship you and you alone, not for what you give us, but for who you are. Lord, for the spiritual salvation, not the prosperity. God, I pray that our eyes would be fixed and focused on you and nothing else. 
Lord, I pray that if you're doing business in the hearts of, of people in this room this morning, God, that you would strengthen them and give them the courage to respond obediently. May they have the faith that leads them to salvation. God, comfort those who are mourning. Encourage those who are weakened. God, convict where there needs to be conviction. We are so grateful for the cross. We are so grateful for your sacrifice. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.